TPC 222 with Special Agent Bruce Ackman, author of Behind the Murder Curtain, which, so when we first, when we first talked, I hadn't read it, and then the second time we talked, I did read it, but because I'm a child, I don't retain well when I read, so because it's not on Audible, which I have scolded you for before, I went through and I found out how to get my phone to read Kindle books to me. It's in a robot voice. It's terrible. But by listening to it, I retained it all. Your book is terrifying. But before we go on, introduce yourself for all the new listeners. Well, I'm glad you said terrifying. For a minute, I thought you were going to say terrible. No, no, no. No, it's wonderful. Terrifying. terrifying. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, hello, everybody. My, my name is Bruce Sackman. I was the senior special agent in charge of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, Office of Inspector General, Criminal Investigation Division for the Northeast United States. And what that fancy title, of course, means is that I was responsible for all major criminal investigations involving both the VA hospital system and contracting and the benefit side of the house for all the VA facilities from West Virginia to Maine. And I retired from that job in, in 2005. And then I went to work for a major healthcare system in the city of New York doing their internal investigations, which was really great. And for 10 years, I served as the president of the Society of Professional Investigators here in New York. Yes. So that's my life, it's, investigations from A to Z. And really, I mean, investigating the most like competent serial killers there are, right? Because it's not the it's not the crazy guy with the beer belly that's just you know killing hitchhikers. It's these double it's double o seven license to kill. It is handsome, intelligent, manipulative, and they know what they're doing. They're hiding behind all the other uh, healthcare practitioners. I mean, really, demons. It's like, uh, it's written in one of the Sherlock Holmes books uh, that says, physicians are the first of criminals. They have the knowledge and they have the nerve. Yeah. And that's pretty well said. And, I mean, they're hidden amongst just natural death anyway, right? Totally. Totally. Because as we, we talked about in a hospital setting, Death, unfortunately, is a common everyday occurrence. Sure. You know, I mean, um, that's why there's a morgue in a hospital. They yeah. don't have a morgue in, the, in every office building, that's... but they have an, a morgue in a hospital because patients are very ill. And even though our most competent medical professionals may try their best, they can't certainly cure everybody of every ailment. Yeah. So death is a common everyday occurrence in there. Yeah. So... If you are so inclined to murder somebody, it's a pretty good location to murder somebody where death is a common everyday occurrence. And that's why, unfortunately, we've seen these medical serial killers for the most part commit their murders in hospital settings, particularly in the ICU, in the intensive care unit, because that's where people are most sick. Mm -hmm. And that's where death occurs. You know, more often than not. So it's, you know, it's the perfect location to commit a murder if you're so inclined to do so. Yes. And it's, it's like you kept saying, 
Dr. Swango. Am I saying his name correct? Well, yeah, I've heard it pronounced so many ways that uh, that way is as good as any. We'll go with Swango. Dr. Swango is, yeah, I mean, like, like a manipulative partner. You keep bringing it up in your book that every time he gets caught, he's disgusted that these accusations come up again. I came out here to Africa out of the kindness of my heart. I took the Hippocratic, and it's, like you said, you know, hospital, the, even in, yeah, even in Africa, the hospitals, they had their hunch, but it's like, how often does a does a brilliant American doctor just waltz on in and say, hey, I'm working, right? And it's, so you're tempted by that Absolutely. accessibility. They, they looked at it as a, a great gift. Yes. And here we have this young American physician that came here on his own to help us. I can certainly understand how excited they were. Sure. You know, they had a shortage of physicians. They didn't have much in the, in the way of modern medicine available to them. So to have somebody like Dr. Swango volunteer, I mean, they were excited to have him. Yeah. But they certainly weren't stupid no. because they too realized in a short order that something was wrong. Something was wrong with this physician. He was not actually curing people. He was actually harming people. Yes. So even in, in Zimbabwe, and you know, don't think of Zimbabwe like you're looking at some old Tarzan movie or no. something. I mean, it was a pretty modern facility. Yeah, yeah Namibia. And, um, you know, the people are very well educated there. But, um, you know, they don't have the same resources as you would in a big hospital in America. But they were very well trained and competent. And they realized in short order that there was something wrong with this guy. Yeah. And, I mean, how eerie the, like, the farmer who is having his, like, ankle amputated and, like, wakes up to Swango injecting something and then waves goodbye. And he manages to tell the nurse what happened and they find the the needle or the cover of the needle under the bed, right? It's you know, it's almost an identical story what happened in the U.S. As a matter of fact, uh, when I make presentations, I, I have this videotape. And you see a patient in... Um, Ohio say I got a visit by Dr. Swango. He injected me with something and waved bye-bye and then I passed out. Luckily she survived. The next video is the exact same story but in Zimbabwe where a resident of Zimbabwe says Dr. Swango came in my room, injected me with something and waved bye-bye. Very eerie but very, very true. Very true. So initially in Zimbabwe, they actually tried to remove him, try to prosecute him, and he got a hold of a local attorney there, mm -hmm. a very well-respected local attorney who successfully defended him. So no charges at that time were actually brought against Swango, and he was able to leave and return to the U.S. And it's, it's so eerie about... I love... I love the volunteer, or not, well, not volunteer, the firefighters. I love how they turn into Sherlock Holmes. I just have this imagery in my head of they all eat the donuts and they get sick, so they leave out the pitcher of iced tea. Well, the EMTs. The EMT. Sorry, yes. And I, when I was uh, when I was seventeen, I got I got busted by the cops for drinking beer with my friend Joe, and uh, who's been on this podcast before. Shout out Joe. But that was thirteen, fourteen years ago. But I remember I had to do my um, 
volunteer. I had to do my community service at a at a firehouse. So in my mind, I had this entire thing playing out and down to like the bunks and where they're sleeping. But yeah, they all leave and they leave the pitcher. And then they come back and they take the pitcher to an independent lab. And sure enough, was it there's arsenic in it? Yes. Rat killer. And you know what? EMTs, uh, these were bright guys. Yes. I mean, these uh, these are very bright guys. They do God's work. Yes. As, as EMTs. and uh, But that, of course, didn't mean anything to Swango because everybody to him was a potential target, whether it be a co-worker, a loved one, a landlady. He really didn't care. Anybody and everybody was a, a potential target to him. But to their credit, they realized what has happened. And they uh, they ran the test. They notified the police. The police did a really excellent investigation. They went to his home. They found all kinds of poisons. Well, mm-hmm. he claimed he had an ant problem mm-hmm. and actually showed an ant. You see, you see, yeah, here's an example of my ant problem. But then they discovered that ant actually came from a different part of the United States. And that ant doesn't walk around his community. Okay? So they realized how full of crap he was. And then he went to trial and he waived the jury because he thought he could probably, was so much smarter than the average juror that he needed to just speak directly to a judge. And he spoke to a judge and the judge it's right away how dangerous this guy was. Yeah. He sentenced him to prison. Yeah. He sentenced him to prison for poisoning his co-workers. And we thought, we hoped, maybe that would be the end Got of Swango. But as you know, just the beginning. Just, it's, he's, just the beginning. he's, I mean, he really is someone that it's like, it's like you had better kill them or they're going to rise their head. And well, now he's, he's essentially dead because i didn't know this until you said at the towards the end of the the bit about swango was he's an adx florence supermax which just as a random thing that i'm interested in that is something that i got really into like five years ago was that because the warden calls it the clean version of hell it is the most maximum secure prison in the world arguably over guantanamo oh i yeah yeah. yeah, I mean that, that that's where we put the worst terrorists, yep. the worst of everybody yep. goes in there. Yep. And nobody gets out. No one. Ever. And no. eventually many of them actually go crazy. Yeah. In that environment. It's yeah. if you ever read a document or watch a documentary about it, it's I mean, yeah, the nine the nine eleven mastermind is in there. Um yeah. Hansen, the uh the most the recent FBI. yeah, FBI uh def- or mole for the KGB there's a lot in there yeah but it's yeah adx florence is middle it's yeah it's terrifying but i was happy to find out find out he's because as you were saying in your book you know it's like he got sentenced and then the judge you said the first time you'd ever heard it and the last time you'd ever heard it the judge said and he's like three three consecutive life sentences without uh parole and in the in the in the eventual or in the probability that u.s the congress changes the u.s code and you are somehow eligible for bull, uh, excuse me, parole, parole, bail. Good Lord, I'm having a stroke. You are preemptively excluded from that. I mean, that was incredible. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> that was incredible. And uh, this was an old, old-time judge, been around a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you couldn't pull any. He's seen it all, yeah. heard it all. Although this may have even been a first for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
it was incredible. And I'll tell you something, I'll, I'll never forget that day of the sentencing because the families were there, the families of the victims, you know? And Swango got up and he stood at attention like a, like, like a Marine. Mm-hmm. And he showed no emotion whatsoever. And he explained to the judge that he used the paralytic to murder these people. And, you know, said right up front exactly what his what he did. And I was sitting there at the sentencing with the inspector general of the VA. He flew up from Washington, D.C. to actually witness this himself. And Swango's defense attorney was putting his arm around Swango. Yeah. Like the poor victim yeah. of something. And I thought my boss, the inspector general, was going to get up and strangle this guy. Yeah. Yeah, you said he's patting them on the back. He had some comments that he whispered that uh, uh, were appropriate, but not not to be restated. Yeah. He was, um, that was something else. And then then, then that was gone. He walked out, the marshals took him out, never to see him again. And then we went outside in front of the court and the press was there, of course, and they were asking a lot of questions and they, they, they spoke to the families because the families actually had an opportunity at the sentencing to talk about their fathers. So they talked about their fathers and what they did in World War II and Korea and how they were actually improving until they got a visit from Swango. And of course it was very emotional and, and, and the, the families, my heart always, always goes out to them. And I think probably the, the most emotional of the, the families I saw was not actually at the, the Swango hearing, but at Kristen Gilbert, nurse Kristen Gilbert, because after she was convicted of murdering uh, four patients, there was a separate trial to determine whether she should get the death penalty or not. Mm-hmm. Now, Massachusetts is a state that does not have the death penalty. But because the murders occurred at the VA, which had federal jurisdiction, she actually got tried in federal court. And in the federal court, there is a death penalty. So it was incumbent upon the prosecution to present evidence as to why she should actually be executed. Okay. okay. Not that it's something that we really wanted to do, to tell you the truth. We were very, very happy with the conviction, and we knew that she'd get life sentences without the possibility of parole. She was a mom. She had some young kids. But it was incumbent upon the prosecution to make that case. That, that was their, their duty. Mm. And they showed the the films and videos of all the victims. It was very, very moving. You know, at Thanksgiving dinners, Christmas dinners, at their time in the service, put a real human touch on this. But so much of the case was actually involved in the science. Yes. One scientist saying one thing and the opposing scientist saying something else. But here, when we're at the hearing to determine whether she should get the death penalty or not. The science was all past us, it was all past us. It was all about the emotion and the families and the suffering they had and how terrible it was on the human side of these cases. So the jury was out for a while. I don't remember how long, but they came back and they said no death penalty. 
And we were actually fine with that. We were actually kind of happy about that, to tell you the truth. It's not like we were bloodthirsty. Yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't know that if you read the newspapers, because the defense had made this argument. Yeah. And we were like, like, like Nazi war criminals. And we were hang these people in the town square. Yeah. You know, and it, nothing could be further from the truth. The prosecutors were just doing the job that they had to do, and they were very, very professional. I mean, out of all the cases that I had, that was one of the best team of prosecutors and investigators I have ever seen put together, ever. Okay. Everybody got along great. There was no interagency fighting, which happens. FBI, I mean, you've made very clear. Happens. You know, it happens, and it happens, but none of that. It was all business, and very, very professional, and um, it was really, really a, a great case and a great experience, but it took a long time. I had one agent assigned to the case, I don't know, years maybe he was on that case, and I always had to defend him from the bosses that were saying, why is he just working one case? Why can't he work other cases, you know? Because all law enforcement is stat-driven. Yes. All right. They all want to know how many indictments, how many convictions, you know, and here's somebody tied up just on one case. Yeah. But it was a super important case and it worked out really, really well. And um, it's really a great example. As a matter of fact, the, the prosecutors got the attorney general's award, actually an award from the attorney general for, for doing that case, which they, they clearly deserved. One prosecutor became a federal judge. Okay. involved in the case, yeah. Terrific, terrific case. And so I was thinking, so Swango's killed all these people. I mean, if it wasn't real and it wasn't so horrible, it would almost be comedic. I mean, in the loosest sense of the word, it would because it's like, how does this guy keep doing this, right? It'd be like if you crashed, like, I feel like if you were a, a Delta pilot and you managed to somehow crash like eleven seven forty sevens, like if if there weren't if there wasn't so much death involved, at a certain point you'd be like, "How is this guy still employed?" <laughs> like, right? It's at a certain point, it starts to get a little like you're just listening to the again and again. And you're like, everywhere this guy goes, people just die, which got me thinking. How do they differentiate between just malpractice, just in or between malpractice and or incompetence? Maybe this guy really shouldn't have got his medical degree, and being a serial an MSK, a medical serial yeah. killer. Yeah, no, that that that's a great question, and it's often asked, and sometimes it's not so clear. But I could tell you what usually the demarcation line is. Okay, a couple of things. One is that we find that um, these patients were not expected to expire when they did. Yes. You know, natural death, it's like shedding off that fan yeah. and the blades gradually slow down. If you ever had a loved one in the hospital yeah, that was near death, you knew it. Yep. The staff knew it. It wasn't really a shock. No. But this was just an opposite situation with these people. They were bright one day and the light was turned off the next, just like a light bulb. Bright and you turn off the light bulb, dark. Not expected by the staff or the family. Also, sometimes we notice that these people will start to look in the medical charts of patients that are not their own. 
that are other patients on the ward that are not their own. And they, we, we wonder why they're looking at these people. I mean, what's their reason? They may say they were covering for them, other people, and maybe they were, or, or, or maybe they weren't. And then finally, what we do is that we make a determination that after the patient got a visit by this healthcare professional and expired, was there some medication given to them that they should have never had received? Okay. So if the toxicology, if an autopsy shows that the death is consistent with something like epinephrine poisoning, mm-hmm. and there was no medical reason for them to have epinephrine, that's the key. Now, recently in West Virginia, it's not in the book, but it's a, a very recent case, the VA hospital in West Virginia, It was a nurse's aide who um, was convicted, she actually pled guilty, of killing seven patients with insulin. Jesus. Insulin is actually a very common uh, murder weapon, believe it or not. And one of the reasons why it's very common, because it's not a controlled substance. So there's not a great way to log and track who takes out the insulin and who gave it to who went, right? And there were a lot of lapses in the pharmaceutical controls in that hospital of the insulin. So she used insulin and admitted to it. There's also um, a nurse in Canada, a very famous case of a nurse in Canada that killed eight people with insulin. So insulin sometimes is a drug of choice. In fact, another famous serial killer, Charles Cullen in, uh, that in Connecticut and Pennsylvania, he started out with insulin and then he graduated to the digoxin, which is a drug that's used uh, for cancer. So um, insulin is, is a common thing. But again, these people, there was no medical reason for them to have insulin. No medical reason whatsoever. Taking notes. And, 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 and that those are the things that separate somebody from an incompetent physician. Let's say you're my patient mm-hmm. and I prescribe the wrong medication for you and I my, I had good intention, but I really screwed up because either I'm not educated or I'm on drugs myself or something. That's what kind of separates that situation from your medical serial killers. So are there, and then are there things that are not traceable? Because yes, like they don't have yeah the metabolites. Well, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell read you my a mind. story. Got a drug called succinylcholine. All right, succinylcholine. They call it sucks in the hospital. Yeah, it's a paralytic. Yeah, it's actually used to put a tube down. You paralyzes you so they can put a breathing tube yep. down. Okay, succinylcholine um, is not traceable in embalmed tissue. However, however, there was one case where we led to believe that a new test could show it. Now, Swango, interestingly enough, we believe that he used succinylcholine and he just said he had used the paralytic. He didn't actually identify the paralytic. So we said succinylcholine, he said, yes, I use the paralytic, but was it actually succinylcholine or not? He did not admit to that. And the way we came up with succinylcholine is that there's a, a, a firm called National Medical Services in Pennsylvania, the largest private forensic firm in the country. Excellent firm, 
top people A plus all around, all right? And when it was suspected that succinylcholine was used, I said to the, the president, I said, do you think you could actually find traces of succinylcholine in embalmed tissue? I mean, these people are all dead and buried. And he said, yes, there's a new machine. It's called the High Performance Liquid Chromatography Tandem Mass Spectrometer. Oh, shit. Of course. How, <laughs> how did I forget? <laughs> he said, look, Bruce, you know what? It's very scientific. You couldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. Maybe you shouldn't understand. <laughs> Trust me, it's going to work. Yeah. So for the Swango case, we used that. And Swango said, yes, I used a paralytic. Yes. Not toxinocholine, but a paralytic. Then we have another case in the book, the case of Richard Williams, the only alleged serial killer in the book. And I say alleged because he has never been convicted. This is what happened. Every time Nurse Williams was on duty, you know the story, the death rate went up. He took time off, the death rate went down. In fact, the director of the facility said, well, you know what, let's assign another nurse to work with Richard Williams and watch him. And when the other nurse was working with Richard Williams, the death rate went down. But when that other nurse had to take a day off, a few days off or something, the death rate went up. So what was the murder weapon? Well, this case actually even predates Swango and the FBI, to their credit, tried their best to find out what what the drug of choice was for him couldn't do it he had this excellent toxicologist agent his name is brian donnelly just tops super super guy super toxicologist you know phds and, and everything you'd ever want couldn't find it out michael bonnet did mm-hmm. the autopsy couldn't find the cause of death couldn't find the cause of death so after swango I met again with the inspector general and I said, look, you know what? We have this new machine now, this high performance liquid, you know the name, all right? Can we try it? Let's try it. Look, we've had success in two cases now. We had success with Swango and we had success with Gilbert. Let's see, let's see what we can do. Okay. We bring up our forensic nurses, these wonderful, wonderful, wonderful nurses that are trained in both forensic science and nursing. In the book, Michael Bonner referred to them as Bruce's angels. Yep, yep. They came up to New York, they sat down and they looked at the cases and they said, you know what? We actually think we know what happened here, all right? We think what happened here is um, there was an injection of a drug like a paralytic, like succinylcholine, that actually caused the heart to stop, but the wires, you might say, attached to the uh, heart are still hot. So like the pump is broken, but the wires are still hot. And that's what killed them. But we don't know exactly what drug it means. It could could be succinylcholine. So we got the tissues that had been collected and we brought them to the National Medical Services and they said, they put it in their magic machine and it came out and said, succinylcholine, hallelujah. Now, Richard Williams, who had left the VA, 
and then went to the private sector. And when he went to the private sector, guess what happened there? The death rate went up as well. Okay. So we convinced the local process. Now, this is an interesting uh, story here is because VA hospitals come in three different judicial flavors. The first flavor is exclusive jurisdiction, like a military base. The police cannot come on that base unless they are invited, all right? It's the exclusive territory of the United States. That's one flavor. That's the way Northport was, where Swango Mm -hmm. was. The next flavor is concurrent jurisdiction where both the feds and the state can share jurisdiction. That was the case with Gilbert, and it went federal because of the concurrent jurisdiction. The last and the rarest of the three flavors is something called proprietorial jurisdiction. Proprietorial jurisdiction means that since we're only renters, so it's the jurisdiction of the local city state. It's not federal jurisdiction. And when the FBI went into the case, they went into the case under the guise of it being a civil rights violation, which only has a five-year statute of limitations. That five years was up. It was up. So there was no more federal case to be made. So what had to be made was a state case. State case of murder, that you could do forever, Mm -hmm. all right? Because, you know, state murders investigate forever, right? There's no statute of limitations. Yeah. So we convinced the local prosecutor to indict Richard Williams on 13 counts of murder, saying that he used succinylcholine. Now, before this, very interesting. One of the families or one of the victims had sued the VA claiming that Richard Williams had intentionally killed their father. Now, a civil case is different than a criminal case. A civil case is for money damages only, no jail, money damages only. And you have to prove what they call a a preponderance of evidence, which is like 51% of the evidence. So if you could show that 51% of the evidence is on your side, you win the case. Okay. And they won. They won a substantial dollar amount against the VA claiming that one of our nurses, Richard Williams, had murdered their father. But that was only a civil case. Now, interestingly enough, Michael Bodden and the FBI agent had to actually testify for the VA saying, we don't see what the murder weapon is. We can't find what the cause of death was. But in spite of their testimony, the family actually won the lawsuit. So now we're going into the trial. We are ready. We got 13 counts. This guy is locked up. We're very excited. Airtight. Got him. But since the science is relatively new, and there's always a danger with new science, Mm -hmm. I must say, it had to be peer-reviewed, and the FBI peer-reviewed the science, and they cannot successfully replicate what National Medical Services had done. Because they found that succinylcholine under the the testing that National Medical Services did was like everywhere, even in a calf's liver. And there should be no reason to have succinylcholine in a calf's liver. And based on that, the prosecutor withdrew all the charges against Richard Williams. 
Now, I had argued that the deaths were consistent with epinephrine poisoning, so we didn't actually have to show that there was epinephrine poisoning if we can't. But the prosecutor from Boone County, Missouri, okay, who's now a judge there, um, declined to move forward with the case. I understand. Listen, it's it's not. He said, "Hey, Bruce, if you think it's so good, you go prosecute him." Well, look, I'm not a prosecutor, you know, but I could see that I was not making headway. Sure. Although I, I tried. So what happened to Richard Williams? Well, he's not in the healthcare business anymore, but he's still roaming around, and uh, he's not the only serial killer, you know, to escape justice. He's not the only medical serial killer. Um, the nurse in Italy, who we talked about last time, who used to take selfies. Uh, with herself and the victims, she escaped prosecution as well um, because of the science, you know, because um, they, the patients did not die like immediately after seeing her, like a week later. And they said because of that, they cannot make a nexus that the drug that, that she used, potassium chloride, was actually the murder weapon. So she was acquitted as well. So listen, like every other murder case, sometimes there are acquittals. You know, do I think Richard Williams murdered these people? I do. But I must say, you know, that uh, he's he's a free man and is just my opinion and my my feeling on, on the subject. But uh, he's innocent until proven guilty and he wasn't proven guilty. Uh, can, we, can we circle back to that girl who took... So- can I take 30 seconds to use the restroom? I'll cut this part out. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Bruce. Too, too much. Too much water. And I'm back. <laughs> Sorry about that. I've gotten, <laughs> I've gotten the first like 50 episodes. I was so bad about always using the restroom, and I got really good at cutting out, drinking tons of water. But there's. I don't know, maybe there's some subconscious thing where, because you were like my, you were in the first 20 guests. There's some subconscious thing I find where I have on, like, if I have on my early guests again, I end up somehow drinking, it's like muscle memory, and I find myself just like going to the bathroom, I'm like, why the hell has this happened? But you didn't ask, and neither did anyone else, but the girl, <laughs> the selfie girl, you said we talked about that, but I don't remember talking about well, it. I'll tell you the story. Please do, because that's, what the hell is that? <laughs> So in, in beautiful Italy, and I love Italy, it's such a beautiful country to visit. In yeah. There was a nurse, her name is Daniela. Daniela is 41 years old. She was arrested on the suspicion of killing 38 patients. 
Numbers 38, okay? And um, if you saw a picture of her, she's really like a real cutie, sure. you know? And I guess she photographed really well because she loved to take a selfie okay. of herself and the, the patient she had just murdered. And the reason why, you know, she told people that, you know, they were annoying, they kept ringing the buzzer and the buzzer and all that. So finally, you know, um, the co-workers got very, very concerned and, and they, they went, went to the police and she was cool, calm, denying everything. In fact, when the, when the cops went to her house, she was there with her boyfriend. And the cops go in the house and they say, you know, you're under arrest for the murder of 38 patients. And the boyfriend says, what? <laughs> what? Living with this guy. She's under the murder for 38 patients. And he, she says, oh, be quiet, Giuseppe. This is all just a big misunderstanding. Yeah. Nothing is going to happen. So she, she gets tried. And I think she's actually convicted, but it's overturned because she used potassium chloride. Now, potassium chloride is what they use when they give you the lethal injection. Mm -hmm. When you get a lethal injection, you don't die a week later. So the defense was, if she was killing these people, it wouldn't have taken them days to expire. Yeah. And that was a successful argument that was actually used. In fact, you know, she had actually treated she had treated a relative of the nurse, I'm sorry, the relative of the director of the hospital who died. Holy shit. She actually, yes, she actually did. So what she's doing now, I, I, I do not know. I do not know. But look, these cases, in fairness to everybody, are extraordinarily difficult to yeah. make. Extraordinarily difficult to make. But many of them have been made. Unfortunately, not until many, many people have died. You know, the fame, one of the worst ones in the United States is that Nurse Cohen that I had mentioned, not, not at the VA. But um, very, very troubled guy, tried to kill himself on numerous occasions. Um, was a nurse in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, always suspected of doing something, but moved on before a formal investigation was able to prove anything. And then finally, finally, one of his co-workers notified the state they did an investigation and um, he killed at least 60 people. But like I say, with these serial killers, they kill so many people, they can't remember themselves, even when they want to cooperate. Yeah. How many people they kill. They, 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 they just can't remember. I mean, especially Swango killed people all over the world. I mean, I have not found in any of the cases, a diary kept of the murder victims. Like I murdered this person on that day, this person on that day. Then I have not seen it in any case, in any case that I could think of anywhere. All right. Um, they just kind of go on to the next, you know, and I haven't seen any evidence of, of recording the incident. That, that I haven't seen. And do these these medical serial killers, the MSKs, they are they like? Do they keep tokens? You know, like a lot of serial killers will keep tokens, or do these guys really just ice them and then leave? You know, no wristwatch, no. The only case of taking tokens that I'm aware of is Harold Shipman in England. Doctor Shipman 
killed about 300 patients. All right. Um, he would, he made house calls. Yeah. This wasn't in a hospital setting. He made house calls. All right. And he would help himself to their jewelry or other personal effects. And I think it was just because he, for financial reasons, more than for token reasons. All right. Um, and the way he got caught is he actually changed the will of one of the victims to make himself the beneficiary, which didn't go over too well with the, with the victim's family. With the actual beneficiaries. <laughs> right. <laughs> Little thing. Yeah. One thing led to the next. Now, just to show you how difficult it is to prosecute these people, Dr. Harold Shipman was the only physician in the history of England going back to, I guess, the Norman Conquest, to ever be successfully prosecuted for murdering his patients. Really? Okay. Yes. So that gives you a little bit of a peek into the history of these cases and how difficult they are to make these cases. And I think sometimes, honestly, we get lucky. Sometimes... You know, people, the guilt finally gets to them and they agree to plead guilty, but it's very difficult during an actual trial to sometimes prove guilt. Like Kristen Gilbert, now this is what happened with Kristen. Kristen Gilbert was a trial. She didn't plead guilty. Kristen Gilbert trial lasts for six months. Can you imagine a trial lasting for six months, day in, day out for six months? Okay. It was witnesses and experts. She had her experts saying that our our science that showed she used epinephrine was bogus. We had our experts to say that the deaths were consistent with epinephrine poisoning. It was a real battle royale. Okay. And that lasted for six months and the jury came back and said she was guilty guilty for the four murders and a number of other attempted murders and and other things that Mm -hmm. almost don't make a big difference in the big scheme of sentencing. So, but six months of trial. Now, first of all, how many prosecutors even have the resources to do? Yeah. I mean, the federal government, we had the resources. Okay. But could you imagine the cost of this trial? The millions of dollars it cost in in lab work, in testimony, in investigations. And of course, we have to pay for the defense too. And because it's a capital case, Kristen Gilbert was entitled to the very best defense, defense attorneys who are skilled in capital cases. Mm. Not somebody that, you know, used to do just insurance fraud and now they got a capital case. No, somebody, so she had quite a team including private investigators as well. So it was a very, very fair trial, Mm. very fair trial. And the people on the jury, they were attentive. I mean, I didn't ever saw anybody nodding off or anything. They were very attentive throughout the whole six months of the case. It was quite an experience as you, as, as, as you can imagine. Yeah. Quite the experience. Now, do you think that, we kind of touched on this last time, but it's got to go back to it because it's still it's still obviously in the it's still current events. Do you think that there are 
anyone there are any professionals taking advantage of covid to mask their serial murders bunch of they mean 200,000 plus dead and just in the united states it's i mean i'm looking at it purely from it the psychopathic mind of someone that just a, a swango i mean this has got to be this has got to be a godsend to them well if i was swango i would take advantage of it that's what I'm, i mean yeah if i was around now Am I aware of any cases? Not yet. Do you think Not yet. I'm not aware of any cases yet. But just because I'm not aware of it doesn't mean it hasn't happened. But it would, it would, it would be an opportunity for somebody like that because if we're in a new area, we don't really know what the right treatment is. We're not sure what the right medications are. So there's a lot of leeway we have to give physicians, particularly early on when this thing first hit. So it would afford me, if I was a killer, an opportunity to take people out and just write it off as a COVID-19 death. And nobody's going to even challenge it because people are dying all so over many. the place. You know, early on when the crisis really hit New York, yeah. I mean, it was... It was really terrible. Mm -hmm. It was really terrible. And look, uh, physicians just really didn't have the knowledge of what was the best way to treat this thing. So yes, it would provide a perfect environment for somebody that was so inclined to murder people. Did that happen? I honestly don't have any evidence of that, but I may not get the evidence of it because sometimes these cursed cases don't surface until weeks, months, even years after the fact. Somebody could go back and look and they could say, wow, why did this, why did these, all these COVID-19 patients seem to expire when Dr. Tommy was on? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Why, why him? And when the other doctors were on, well, you know, the death rate was at a certain level, but when Dr. Tommy was on, the death rate was really high. Yeah. And what was unique about these patients that he had that just made them so sick that they expired? Somebody's going to take a look at that yeah. at some point in time, and we'll see what surfaces. It'll be very interesting. Not and the, here's and this is another question that I mean, there's no way you could have facts or figures on, so I'm asking you to just speculate wildly. But I was just thinking what would be another area where it's the, you can get lost in the chaos and it just kind of hit me what if you were a combat medic i mean who the hell is checking is checking over you you know you know I'm, I'm, take I'm, out I'm, your own guys i think that's one of the reasons why swango loved being an emt more than a physician yep because here he is at the scene of an accident uh Attempted homicide, strangulation, poisoning, God knows what. He loved every minute of that. That's what every I mean. Every second of that. That's what I mean. That, you know, and yeah, so that's that's definitely definitely an, an, an opportunity. Yeah. Definitely an opportunity. I think one of the most unique cases, though, in, in the book is the case of uh, Dr. Charles Cornack. Mm-hmm the fellow who put people into uh, medical research that didn't meet the standards to be in that research and they died. That case really kind of bothered me a lot. I mean, they all bother me a lot. Yeah. But there's something about that case that to this day still sticks in my core. Because you know what? Cornac, unlike the other medical serial killers, 
have an opportunity to sit down with the family and the victim and persuade the family and the victim that the course of treatment he's giving them is going to save them is the best thing. So the other serial killers, well, a person coded, they went in, boom, boom, boom. And then like Swango, we used to like to talk to families uh, after, after the murder. After. What made this so unique, and it's the first and only that I'm aware of homicide conviction in connection with medical research. I mean, there's a lot of fraud convictions, but the first homicide conviction in medical research is that he would sit down with your family and say, you know, Tommy has this prostate cancer and we tried everything, but you know, there's a new drug. There's a new drug. And if he agrees to go on this trial, you know what? This might save him. He might be able to stay with the family for more years, you know, go to his sister's wedding, you know, attend his child's confirmation, whatever. So naturally, you're going to say, sign me up. Yeah, sign me let's up if go. there's nothing else. Now, I'm coming around and I'm wearing a VA lab coat that says Dr. Charles Cullen, but I'm not even a doctor. I'm not even a doctor, but the VA allowed him to wear Dr. Charles Cullen. All right. He had been a doctor yeah. or licensed as a physician and then lost his license for fraud. All right. But we hired him not as a doctor, but as a research associate. But we allowed him to walk around with this name tag that said Dr. Charles Cullen. So I'm sitting down and I got this prostate cancer and everybody tells me, oh, I'm a real goner here. And then Charles Cullen comes around and he says, no, we've got this great new study. Now, in order to be in any of these studies that are all um, paid for by the pharmaceutical companies, a patient has to meet what they say is the inclusion exclusion criteria, which means you have to have the right disease, the right blood work, the right EKGs. I mean, you gotta have all the criteria that the pharmaceutical company wants in order for you to go into this study. Yeah. It's not easy finding patients, particularly in Albany in New York, that have all of this. Yeah. It's not so easy. Now, I'm Charles Cullen. My career, my future is based on how many patients I can bring into these pharmaceutical studies because the amount of money we get reimbursed is based on the number of people. Yep. If we don't have at least 10 patients, we can't do the study. We lose a million dollars. If we have between 10 and 25 patients, we make X amount more money. So there's a great financial incentive to get patients. So, shit, I can't find patients here in Albany. I know what I'll do. See this guy, Tommy? He has prostate cancer. He doesn't really meet the inclusion-exclusion criteria, but he's, uh, he's, in the, he's in the ballpark. So you know what? We have the medical records of this guy, Bruce, who actually did meet the inclusion-exclusion criteria. So I'll take his medical records, put Tommy's name on it, put it into the file and then when the insurance company comes around they'll say hey look he's got all the right inclusion criteria he could be in the study uh, could you imagine that see my serial killers they don't go through all this paperwork no, that's exceptional now, they didn't go through all this fraud they just boom went out and did their thing did the thing 
But this was so premeditated, he just sat around and thought about this and put these poor veterans into the study who did not meet the inclusion exclusion criteria. And actually, some of them died. Right? So we, we, got the, we did the investigation. And I can tell you this, the prosecutor on the case happened to be in the Army Reserves as a judge on the Court of Military Appeals. And the judge on the case happened to be a veteran who served two tours in Vietnam in the combat role. So you can imagine they were not too happy about this scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? They were not too happy about this. And um, Charles Cullen got indicted on, I can't even remember how many counts of everything under the sun. And then I remember when I, I, I finally met him. When I first went in there, I was like, I wanted to strangle this guy. I literally wanted to strangle him. And then I see this guy sitting there, and he's like a pathetic soul. Yeah. I mean, uh, all of a sudden, in some strange way, I don't want to say I felt sorry for him. Let me just say I felt different. Okay. So all of a sudden, I didn't want to strangle him. All of a sudden, I said, look at this pathetic guy. He's never succeeded in anything in his life. Everything in his life is a lie. And this is what he did. And so he pled guilty. He pled guilty to a one count of um, homicide and a number of other counts and got sentenced to, I, I forgot how long, a, a, a number of years in jail because he, he cooperated, right? And, and the family sued and, um, and I'm not sure exactly what happened. I, I, I don't actually think they won. I'm not, I'm not sure what happened, but that particular case was so unique so unique because here's a guy who convinced people to follow him so that he could put them in this study and he didn't care whether they lived or died or not that to me was particularly brutal That's particularly brutal brutal case you're right it's because it's got the i've brought this point up before is it's like stalin killed something like any, on like the low end, like five, and the high end, uh, ten times as many people as Hitler. But there's something that, despite being numerically worse, right? There's something that everyone is drawn to. That's just like, what is it about the Nazis that was so? And it's because it was name. It was eugenics. It was you find them, you put them in trains, you you put you know you tattoo serial numbers on them, you keep records. And it's it's streamlined and like the Germans, it's just like a streamlined machine. And that's kind of what makes it so eerie is like you could, you know, you could kill 10 times as many people through starvation. But there's something about the um, industrialized, streamlined, just extermination that's so eerie. You're right. There's something about that, that the other guys, sure, pieces of shit. But you're right. They kind of go in, they do the thing, they get off because they call the family. But it's opportunity these guys this guy is more of like this guy's more of a nazi he's it's planned out it's the everything is drawn out there's just you're right that's something exceptionally chilling about that guy it really was you know another case also that we mentioned in the book is the case involving a, a physician in the va hospital in the northeast 
who intentionally gave an overdose of morphine to a patient because he thought the patient had lived long enough and it was time to go. And um, the nurses protested what he was doing. The staff protested what he was doing, but he says, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm with this, this, this guy is, 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 is going and I'm taking him out. And that's what the family wants. Well, the nurses went to the management and they said, this is not right. Who appointed this guy God? Yeah. You know, he just can't take people out. And the family, they said, we never had that discussion with the doctor. We never said to him that, you know, dad is suffering so much that we want to take him out. Yeah. We never said that. So what happened was that um, we decided to do an investigation. And we, there was a morphine pump and we got the morphine pump and we sent it to the manufacturer and we were able to determine exactly what happened, how he turned up the pump to allow too much morphine to come in and kill the patients, all right? So I said, wow, this is a really good case. Let's contact um, a medical ethicist and get her opinion on this. And she said, this is absolutely wrong. This is murder. He should not do this. He had no authority to do this. Let's go to the United States attorney. We went to the United States attorney uh, and she said, I'm not gonna prosecute this. I said, why? Just, well, you know, the guy was near death and I don't think we're gonna necessarily be able to convince a jury that it was an actual murder because the guy was suffering and all that. And then I did something I did once and I would never actually do again. I used to teach um, this course at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center called How to Present the Case to the U.S. Attorney. So if you're an agent, you do an investigation, there's a little art to how to present the case to the U.S. Attorney's Office because they get a lot of cases. Why should they choose your case to prosecute over somebody else's? So I used to teach this art on how to do this. And one thing I always used to teach, I said, if the U.S. attorney says no, don't ever appeal that decision because they'll never take another case of yours again, ever. I went against my own teaching. I went to the main justice in Washington, D.C., and I appealed the case. I said, I think, and I laid out the whole thing. Michael Bodden laid out the whole thing. Um, and and the, the FBI toxicologist who was with us, Brian Donnelly, he laid out the whole thing. And the Justice Department said, well, you know, Bruce, we see your argument, but we're not going to overturn the decision of the U.S. attorney of that state. So the whole thing was like a colossal waste of time. Meanwhile, the family sued the VA and got a lot of money. Yeah. All right. So to argue that this is what the family wanted, they certainly had a strange way of showing it. All right. But that's one that bugged me too. That's one that bugged me too. You know, yeah. um, that was really, uh, yeah, it was really very troubling to me. You know, yeah. so I, I went against my own teaching, and I paid the price. <laughs> I was, I was, I was, I was going to say, damn it, Bruce. I was going to say, man, if you really wanted to go higher up the, the rabbit hole 
how do we not know that there's not an investigator like you who is a serial killer in that he overlooks serial killer or is that two tinfoil hat <laughs> well you know what i think there are investigators who are intimidated by the whole process of doing this type of investigation not all sure. most will take it as a challenge but there are some look Cops didn't become cops because we're good in chemistry and biology, all right? So we're easily intimidated by the science. Yeah. Easily intimidated by the science. Cops don't want to do investigations in hospitals. They don't understand the hospital's policies and procedures. They don't understand what this HIPAA law is all about, you know, whether you need a subpoena, what you can get, what you can't get. Does it have to be a subpoena by, by a judge? And when the hospital comes back and says, well, we did an internal investigation already and we found nothing wrong, that's an easy out. An easy out for many investigators to move on. Even many good investigators to move on. It's not like that's the only one they're sitting around and that's the only case they have. They have a lot of cases. They have a big inventory of cases. So if they can move this one aside because the hospital's internal investigation showed what it did, some, not all, will move it aside. Yeah. They, they will do that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's like my own social anxiety where, like, I'll, I'll call guests, I'll find their numbers or their emails, and I'll try to get a hold of them, and then I'll call them. And despite, like, going after, like, I want to get this guy in the podcast, I'll be calling them, and it will go to voicemail. I'll be like, oh, thank God, I don't have to talk to them. And I'll be like, what the hell is wrong with me? <laughs> like, why am I doing, why am I in this field? social anxiety is very common. Yeah. Um, so, so that was my that was my stupid question. Um, we touched on this last time at the very end, and I know I only got you for three minutes, but I might have to keep you for a couple minutes over, just a couple. At the end of our second uh, episode, and I'm always good at remembering which numbers they are, but I'm drawing a blank. We talked about you looking. This is a complete 180. But we talked about you had something to do with the the wreckage of the of the World Trade Center. Do you yes. remember? And there was a whole bunch of different... Obviously, the wreckage was brought like across the river. And I remember yes. you saying... I vaguely remember. I should have watched it again. But all these different departments were there. All these... Yes. You know, they all... They're, they're foldable chairs with their names on them. And there's the one that didn't have names. And you thought they're the CIA. But what jogged my memory was in your book. It was just like one line off to the side. It was... The building you were in, there are rumors that the CIA had their own office, which the CIA all over the nation they do have secret offices. That's not a conspiracy, and they have their own stairwells, oh, their own whatever. Something. Yeah, that's not that's no secret, that's no conspiracy. Which just jogged my memory. Not that those two are related, but can you t- can you touch on that again? Because last time you said I'll, I'll bring it up next time, and I completely forgot to bring it up until now. I'm at oh. the end of this one, and I've screwed it up again. But sure. So nine eleven. My office was on Houston Street, about a, a mile um, north of the World Trade Center. I'm on the phone speaking to my agent in charge of uh, an office up north, and somebody says, hey, Bruce, a plane hit the World Trade Center like everybody else. It was such a clear, beautiful day. I thought it was a small plane. Yeah. And then I go downstairs, and I, I see the damage. Then I see the second plane hit. And the next day, um, we go to the site. That day, we actually went to the VA hospitals because 
we were thinking that people were going to come in and maybe we could help, but nobody came in. One or two people came in, nobody came in. Next day, we went down to the site, and the site, we had no equipment. We had nothing. And we didn't, I don't even think we had masks. And it, the site was incredibly dangerous. Not the place for white-collar crime investigators, really. So we stayed for a while, but then I pulled everybody out. They weren't too happy about that, but years later, they're actually pretty happy about that. Yeah. Um, but everybody wanted to do the right thing. So anyway, eventually, we got assigned to the Staten Island landfill, a place called Fresh Kill Staten Island. And that's where they brought all the debris from the World Trade Center up to this site in Staten Island on top of a hill. The sanitation department had an office down, offices and buildings down. And then you took this road up and that's where all the debris was. And there were fire trucks there that were crushed like pancakes and vehicles. And it was something you'll, you, you never, never forget. Yeah. Now, when we first went up there, there was like nothing up there. There was like a um, an Army National Guard, like a mash tent, and that was it. And uh, gradually, a lot of equipment came in and a lot of things came in. So we was assigned to go through the debris of Building 7, which had collapsed, which was the federal building. Inside that building were a number of federal agencies with yep. all kinds of letters. Yep. Um, and we would go through that debris, and I remember sometime I would actually find like tax returns, or all kinds of strange things that, that 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 you would find in there. Well, anyway, all the agencies that were there for the day, on the back of their chairs, they would write, you know, what they were. We were the VAOIG, and there was the FBI, and a whole whole mm-hmm. bunch of mm-hmm. Secret Service was very big there, mm-hmm. very big, I must say. Um, and there's one group of people that had no names on the back of their chairs. So, you know, one of my smart-ass agents goes over to them and says, hey, you know, we're with the Inspector General of the VA. Who are you guys with? And they say, we can't tell you. Okay, guys, you can't tell us. Okay, here we are. I mean, okay, you can't tell us. So they all go out to lunch, and when they all go out to lunch, this wise-ass guy goes over with a marker and he writes CIA on the back of every one of their chairs. Well, and they came back, boy, were they pissed. Boy, I said, I don't know. Uh, I know what so happened. Look at me. I am. You, you guys said you don't know. You can't tell us. Oh, I don't yeah. know. I don't know who you are. Boy, were they pissed. All right. That was, uh, that was one of my 9-11. I tell you this. That place was an EPA disaster before they brought the debris up there. When I would work up there all day, I'd come back, I'd feel it in my chest for like a week. It was, and it was extraordinarily dangerous because they had these earth movers and you could be walking down the road and earth movers behind you and you couldn't even hear it. I mean, it was, I'm surprised more people didn't get hurt there. I mean, there were guys working up there that didn't even have tetanus shots. I mean, it was- Initially, it was very rough. And there were some people, not my agency, particularly Secret Service and NYPD, some of the same people that were there every day for a year. I don't know if they survived that. I I honestly don't know. I remember the Secret Service guy. 
he was there every day, every day. And I went there. And I tell you the truth, I try to avoid going there. I had to go there a couple of times a month. A couple of days a month, I would go there. I had agents that were there more. But I knew, because I felt it in, in my chest, how unhealthy that place was up there. And one time I brought the Inspector General up there, and I brought Michael Barden up there. Mm-hmm. You know, And they would actually have a booth of uh, where the forensic scientists were. And if you would locate some debris and you weren't sure if it was a human part or not because sometimes you couldn't tell because things were so charred and everything you would bring it to them and they would make a determination whether it was human human or not so look it was something that had to be done but i'll tell you this um my heart goes out to those people that were there day in and, and, and day out i mean it was it was not a pleasant place to be yeah. It really wasn't. I mean, once, even once in a while. So now, you know, it's funny when I. So now I go for my nine eleven physical yeah. because of the time I spent up. And on the X ray, they still see glass shards in my lungs Jeez. from the time that I spent up there. I feel fine. I feel fine. You know, but those people that were up there every day, I can't even imagine what the health problems they have. And you periodically you see on the news somebody died of this cancer, that cancer. You know. Um, it was just so, it just caught us by surprise. Just like COVID-19, we didn't know how to handle it. We didn't know how to handle it. It was just an experience that we did not have. And um, they, they had these like conveyor belts where the debris would go on and then it would shake and then it would go down in a basket and you would see what, what, what you got from it. And uh, I mean, the men and women who worked up there it, as of course the site obviously the site as well you know would we, we, just incredible i mean when i went on the site on day two and finally got there you couldn't get if you're familiar with the city you couldn't get south of canal street without boots and a mask i mean it was just impossible and i saw the firemen there and you wanted to say something to the firemen you know how many firemen were lost you wanted to say, I, I couldn't even get the words out. I didn't even know what to say to these guys. Like you see some of them sitting or staring. And I wanted to go over and say something. I found myself speechless. I just didn't know what, what, what to say to them. The sight was unbelievable. Literally every American, every American should have had to walk through that site. Yeah just to get a sense as to exactly what happened because you see it on tv not the same yeah not the same to actually walk through that site and that's why i took i took the ig the inspector general great guy through that site along with the captain in the nypd that i knew who took us around and it was surreal it was just unbelievable you saw the famous picture famous picture where what part of the building is standing up and the cross was there and, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and every once in a while it was so early that they'd still on occasion find the body and bring a body out then all the the, the the work site would stop you know and it was it was done very respectfully and, and, and very very formally and um it's just something you can't you can't forget and i know a number of people that got hurt down there yeah. really seriously hurt but luckily they survived you know the interesting thing is i was actually invited to a conference uh to be held either was a day or two days after 9 11 i don't remember now 
and I had that invitation. I kept that invitation for years. It's like you're invited to a to a conference at the New York Port Authority, and it was um, on either the the twelfth or the thirteenth. I, I I don't remember that. That's how close I came. Jesus. And my sister-in-law, she was in the building when the first bombing. That first bombing. Remember that it 93. was the first bomb. So that was close enough. Close enough, but it it, it was an experience. It was an experience, uh, and to all all the people who work down there, they they really are heroes. Yeah. Just they 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 just did an incredible job, and I don't consider myself one of those those heroes, not at all. The people who were really down there uh, from day one, and people stayed there like all week. I mean, you could smell, you could smell the debris in my office a mile away six months after the collapse. Six months after the collapse, you could smell. So that gives you some kind of idea of the health problems. Now look, are there people that are gonna take advantage of it? Are there people gonna lie about it? Are there people gonna commit fraud over the benefit? Of course there are, there are in every, every disaster. Forever, yeah. All right, every disaster, and that's so hurtful because so many people really deserve all of these benefits. I'm just thrilled I get a free physical every year. I'm, yeah. I'm just thrilled about that. Yeah. But some people really got hurt. And of course, some people lost loved ones. Still. Yeah. yeah. I've had a I've had a guy on here before who I know from the gym, Tony Tedeschi, who was a firefighter on 9-11 in New York. And yeah, he talks about going to ground zero and removing rubble and finding one of his friends who was still alive. And they were trying to get him out, and the rubble shifted, and he died in that process, like a couple of days after. Yeah. And they never, they never found a shred of him. It was just, it's two one hundred and ten story buildings. I mean, it's, it's the the amount of material in that is it's hard to wrap your head around. Is, yeah, it was insane. Well, thank you for, uh, thank you for that last last story. Um, yeah, I would. But at least let's end on a high note. All right. Which is if you behind, the murder, behind the murder curtain by Special Agent Bruce Ackman. If you do buy it, I'd ask people just to post a little review okay. on either Amazon or something okay. about it, you know. And also, I have another book. Uh oh. This book is The Art of Investigation. All right. This book I did with a, a professor from John Jay. It's a collection of stories by investigators all over the world. Okay. And maybe we could do another podcast. I would love, I was going to, I was about to say, yeah. stories in here are incredible. Called The Art of Investigation, and now I'm working on An Art of Investigation 2, a second book. I will get it. But the stories in here are really incredible stories. I will get it. I have a... That's my commercial. Hey, no, hey, I, I love it. You... I will abs- I will 100% I'm not just saying that I will I'm not blowing smoke up your ass I will I will buy that book after this episode and I will put it on Kindle and have Kindle read it to me but on that note Bruce you are going to record an audiobook or so help me God I will come up there <laughs> and know, I will I've had this conversation with my publisher a yeah. couple of times yeah well you know and I'm here and I'm get, and I'm I can't get an affirmative response from him I just can't get well, it well you know we'll forget him that's not an excuse alright you gotta no you gotta push that aside you wouldn't you gotta do it you just gotta do just I will 
I will literally ha- you can call in on this podcast like we're doing right now and I'll just I'll walk away so you don't have to worry about me being here and you can just read your book for seven hours and we'll upload it because audiobooks are how you get to my generation and it's also you have a great voice for it some people have terrible voices for it your voice is exactly what I thought it would be it's perfect and no matter and I'm not just saying this I had a guy yesterday who I recommended your book too he said, that's great. It's on Audible. I said, no, I'm trying to get it on. And he said, please have him put it on. And I said, I'll try, but I've tried before. Do yeah, it. I'm trying. Don't, I'm, trying. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this year. Take the initiative, I, Bruce. It happens. No more excuses. I don't care what your publisher <laughs> says. Then you know what? Then he's your ex-publisher. Let's get a new one and let's do it. Uh, all right. Yeah, I, I, would, I would love to do it. And I understand what you're saying because most of the people I know – are into audio books yeah. and not reading anymore. Yeah. I you know. Yeah. It enables them to um, multitask. Yes. They can, while they do something else, when you're holding a book, you can't really you can't. do anything else. I, that's why I put it on Kindles because when I'm, I'm like studying up for a guest, I'm in the shower, I'm doing dishes, I'm going for my walk, I'm going to the gym, I'm going to get groceries, I'm editing another podcast and I'm listening to it. So really, that's why I do it is so I can take in hours and hours of stuff because I can't sit down I, and I can't focus on it and you really need to and I've had on multiple guests now Jason Parisi and and Justin Ball who wrote a book about fusion I had Juanita Broderick the other day who was raped by Bill Clinton in 1978 and has a book Joseph Teddy, a former special operations operator Dale Comstock former Delta Force all of these are only on Kindle and I keep telling them like I, I go out of my way to read them because I want these guests on but I'm like man there are so many people who oh is it on audible oh it's not on audible it's just it's gone they're never gonna look at it it's just gone so it's for you at least they had the tommy podcast to listen to well it's it's, it's not not don't bank on my podcast because it is just me yelling at the screen with guests who are polite enough to come on don't push the ball in my court bruce this is on you all right i don't don't make me this is this is the third time i'm telling you don't make me all right. Okay. This, is, this will be used right. in my court case. This is a this is video record of me threatening a special agent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bruce Ackman, I will. I, uh, I'll buy your book. I'll text you. Let's set up another one. Thank you so much for everything you've done. Thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you for your service to this country for making this world a better place. Thank you, sir. You're very welcome. All best. All right, sir. God bless. Stay safe. Bye bye.